Geek Vibes Live is rated G for Geek. Hello, 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 everyone, and welcome back to another awesome episode of Geek Vibes Live interview. For today's interview, I'm your host, Tia Fabi, and soon we will be talking to the showrunner and co-creator of the new Netflix series, Daybreak, uh, Aaron Eli Collette. I don't necessarily know if I'm saying his name right, but once he gets on air, we'll make sure that way I don't make too much of a fool of myself. Um, for those listening, Daybreak actually premiered yesterday on uh, on Netflix, which is pretty awesome. So let's talk to the man himself. Aaron, how are you? Hey, I have Aaron Eli Coyce on the phone. Hey, how's everybody doing? Hey, Aaron, how are you? I'm awesome. How are you doing? Doing very well. My name's Tia, just in case uh, you didn't know, but I wanted to make sure before we go any further how I say your name correctly, because I don't want to make a fool out of myself. (laughs) (laughs) I so appreciate that. Uh, It's such a strange spelling. Uh, It's co-light. Co-light, but I got the Aaron part right, right? (laughs) Aaron is correct. It's, It's, you know... I was born in the 70s, and my mom wanted to be super cool, and so she was like, I'm going to give it one A just to make him different (laughs) and to make people question how to say it his entire life. So uh, I really appreciate that. You know, it's okay. She wanted to challenge people to think, and we appreciate that. (laughs) Mission, Mission accomplished. I'll let her know. Exactly. Um, but Aaron, congratulations, by the way, on Daybreak uh, hitting Netflix. How does it feel that the show that you worked on is finally now available for the masses? It's a pretty amazing feeling. I've got to be honest. It is like I, I wish I could be like super cool and chill about it, but it is I, I'm just very geeky. Like it's like a lot of people work really hard on this for, you know, over over two years. Um, so, so to finally get to this moment is, is pretty astounding. And to see the reaction that people are having to it and that people are getting all the little insights, jokes, references, all the little details, um, it's wonderful. It's really, really wonderful. I was going to say, it certainly has, um, I love this kind of, Breakfast Club, Ferris Bueller's Day Off little feel that it kind of has to it. I mean, first episode in, it has that Bueller, Bueller type <laughs> reference in there. <laughs> you know, we, we we have to be really honest about our references. Like we are, we the writers' room, the people, the production staff, we're all really cinema literate people. And we also realize that our audience is the same exact way. We're all just lovers of everything television, film. Um, And so this is a love letter for all of us, hopefully, that we can all get all the references. And if you don't get the references, that you can seek them out and understand like where they came from. Absolutely, absolutely. And so Daybreak is actually... Uh, originated, if I'm not uh, mistaken, from a comic, 
what mm-hmm. kind of made you want to adapt this uh, to the big, well, big screen, small screen? Everyone calls mm-hmm. TV small screens, but hey, depending on how big your TV is at home, it's the big screen, right? <laughs> <laughs> They're getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Exactly. Um, so. So my, my my co-creator and the director of the first two episodes, Brad Payton, was actually the first person to come across the graphic novel by Brian Routh. Um, and he adapted it into a feature. Um, I was supposed to have a meeting with Brad about another comic book entirely. And our, our mutual agent at the time sent me Daybreak to read as a sample of what of what Brad was kind of interested in. And I went into the meeting and I was like, look, I know we're supposed to talk about this comic book, but I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about what you're doing with Daybreak because, <laughs> because that is fascinating to me. And the core of what was really the most fascinating to me was, was this character of Josh at the center of it, which was a character that I hadn't seen before, which was a kid who looked at the apocalypse and looked at the end of the world like it was the best thing that ever happened to him, that he had this um, unending optimism about about life, um, even though he was living in the dystopian future. And I think that that, the reason why that resonated with me is because that's how I felt when I was in junior high and high school. I felt I was that, you know, outsider kid, and I think a lot of us feel this way. We all feel like outsiders and feel like, man, if the world just ended, it would be amazing because I could reinvent myself I could totally be somebody else, and I could get all the cool clothes I want. I could get the cool clothes, the cool cars. I could be anybody else and totally redefine myself. And I think that level of wish fulfillment felt new and unique um, on a trope that we were all in love with and familiar with, but was a new way of looking at at, uh, at a zombie apocalypse. Yeah, and it's... um. It reminds me a little, I know this is maybe a little bit of a stretch, but that one episode of The Twilight Zone where the one guy who just wanted his time to read thought that it was so amazing that no one else was around. And that's kind of how it is for this kid, Josh, where, okay, I pretty much got a blank slate, and now I get to make the most out of this new world. That's completely correct. I love that episode, that Burgess Meredith episode of, of Twilight Zone. It was also, I was very heavily influenced, especially when I was a kid. Um, on HBO, almost, it feels like every afternoon, there was a movie called Night of the Comet. Um, it was an 80s horror film that I just thought was a masterpiece where essentially a comet passes by Earth, basically kills all the adults, and the kids, instead of, you know, going all, all uh, Lord of the Flies on each other and, and fretting, they run to the mall and, and, get, and get all the clothes that they want. And I was like, because that's what I would do. That's exactly correct. And that movie had just, like, really ingrained itself in my memory, certainly at that time. And, and I was like, why, you know, in all of these – because it's – having a, having a world without parents, like – like this is a trope. Like we've, we, it's it's not like we're like reinventing the wheel. But what we wanted to do was be really honest about creating something that had a lot of wish fulfillment and a lot of fun and a lot of positive energy, even juxtaposed against, you know, the worst Armageddon possible. Um, the other thing that it really allowed us to do was 
was the metaphor really played for us because surviving high school does feel like surviving the apocalypse. And every day is a new set of horrors just to get through through teachers and parents and and social problems and and homework and and all it's the best time of your life and it's the worst time of your life and surviving it takes your friends um so we were able to really create this wonderful kind of coming of age metaphor for how we all can survive that time in our lives i i love the metaphor i had to say really quick uh it's funny that you mentioned that 80s movie uh night of the comet you said i was um yeah just i was just listening to a podcast on it this morning so that's actually uh, no way kind of hilarious yeah <laughs> oh, it's, God, obviously, so you know, it's like it's like it's like in the ether it's obviously time to for it to make a little bit of a strong comeback it's uh it's so funny because i was actually also like there's a lot of references that we do in 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 the in the show to all, all manner of 80s and 90s movies whether it's mannequin um, the Kim Cattrall classic, or I just read an article about how the brilliance of Ninja 3, The Domination, which was one of my favorite ninja films of the 80s. And it's just it's so interesting how, how, like, oh, Night of the Comet is now, is now on people's minds. Uh, that's, I, I love it. That's amazing. <laughs> Why do you think that in our day and age we love 80s references with uh, Night of the Comics, Stranger Things. Now Daybreak has all these nods to the 80s. I mean, what is it about the 80s that just people cannot get enough of? You know, I think that there's a there's a slight nostalgia factor. I think it's, there's so much made at that time that, that, that really sunk into, you know, my brain personally that is like, I, I've, it's, it's made me the nerd who I am. Um, and I think that, that one of the things that we are trying to do on, on our show is really is, is have a bunch of 80s references. We have 90s references. We have 2000s references. We have 70s references. Like, I, am, I feel like I am a, a Vitamix of nerd culture, and <laughs> it's all been blended together and poured out uh, uh, that has become the show. Um, you know, the references run, run really deep and really far and wide. Um, and it's, and it's intentional. It's intentional so that, um, you know, a young audience can watch it and under and get some and get a lot of the references. Uh, but they can also watch it with their parents, um, or an older generation and be like, and when that generation laughs at a, at a joke, when I laugh at a joke with my kids, uh, I can explain, oh, well, this is what, what that means. And so it can really create a dialogue um, is, is certainly one of the things that we were intending to do. Right. And with having a show that mixes so many elements in it, what would you say if there were any, say, challenges behind filming Daybreak? Oh, man, all the challenges. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's, the, the, here's the here's the best reference that I could do, and and Brad Payton, uh, the, our director, uh, really brought this up. So George Miller, in making Mad Max Fury Road, uh, he basically had something between eight and fifteen years to create uh, the two hours of 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 what I think is one of the best films of, of certainly of the last decade, and maybe mm-hmm. you know it's definitely in my top ten of all time. I love that movie. It's so well constructed. It's so good. Uh, it's so, 
It's so good. Um, and they, you know, the, the level of detail, everything about it, they had all the time um, to make that shine. Uh, and we had to accomplish basically the same world building in, in basically four months. So, oh. <laughs> it, you know, it's like it's, it's an utterly impossible task to, to accomplish. And I think we were able to accomplish, all, you know, so much of what we intended to do. The level of detail in the production design of creating our post-apocalypse, uh, whether it's the tribe tags, the care, the the wardrobe. Uh, you know, we had amazing production team. Barry Chesed was our production designer. Michael Grand, our, our wardrobe designer. They really were inspired by what we were attempting to do, and we had to dig deep. And so that when we made the distinctions between the tribes, the tags, um, our sets, you know, every little detail, the design of 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 our mutant squirrels with their with their with their 18 eyes that all blink in unison like the level of detail is so fine and it just takes a concentrated effort from so many people to make that happen um and at the same time the other thing that just just to make it harder for ourselves you know we do have these flashbacks um <laughs> so we also have to build the regular world and make our regular world unique and amazing um, and, and certainly distinctive. You know, it's not every day that you have a, a, a 11-year-old girl uh, selling drug-laced slime. So, you know, we had to make the you know, we had to make all the designs for the slime and her onesie, which is one of my favorites. Angelica's onesie went in episode three is one of my favorite uh, <laughs> wardrobe pieces that we have. Um, you know, so so all of it was difficult. Um, but it all paid off, and the the best thing about this production has been every all of these artists that we get to work with every day are all inspired to do their best job. Um, and I think that that at the core of what I I get to do with Showrunner is really curate an experience and inspire people to do their best work. Um, and it's so lovely when when we all get to have fun and make this world together. Yeah, and. That is always just so amazing when everyone can work uh, so cohesively to create something wonderful. You mentioned also having to construct the quote-unquote real world or the past world before uh, all the adults became obliterated. Uh, how mm -hmm. was it getting Matthew Broderick in for this? I mean, I when I watched it, I certainly was like, oh, my God, Matthew Broderick. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it was a dream. I mean, we wrote the role for him. Um, and you know, the, you never ever get the person that you write the role for. I've been doing this long enough and you write, you write with somebody in mind, you make the offer, they pass, and then you move on. Um, so the fact that he, and we were told from, from basically everybody that he was never going to do it. Um, that it was too, you know, it was too referential to Ferris Bueller, that he doesn't do television, that it just wasn't going to happen. Um, but he he loved <laughs> what we were trying to do, um, and he also loved the idea of of playing really against type. Um, I'm assuming you've seen a bunch of the episodes at this point. I've seen a bunch, but I haven't gotten to the last one. <laughs> okay. So, uh, you know. <laughs> I'm so excited for you to see the last one. 
I, I was know, so excited I for you to see what, what definitely what happens and kind of where what happens to Matthew in particular. But you know, for him, and I'm you know since this is you know obviously a spoiler a little bit, playing against Ty, playing a villain was really appealing to him, um, and especially a villain that's hopefully as unique as, as Baron Triumph, um, who's one of the, you know, kindest cannibals that I can ever imagine. Um, there's something so twisted about his portrayal of, of, of this villain that it was, that it was really alluring to him. Um, you know, certainly one of the best moments of my life was, was when he, we got on the phone and he was, we started talking about it and, and his one objection to all, like, he was like, I'm fine with eating kids, like, that's okay. Um, but, you know, you guys, you guys use a lot of bad words <laughs> in this, in this show. And, and the, the, you know, not to be utterly crude, but he was taking exceptions to uh, our use of, of bad words for female genitalia. And, you know, the promise that we made to, to him was, well, we will be equally as 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 mean about male genitalia and that seemed to satisfy him as an answer and we certainly were we were we are equal opportunity offenders when it comes to our cursing in this show i was just going to say that as long as it's equal opportunity offending it's completely fine i love that exactly Uh. it's like look we are we are all about equal like we we do not want to disparage any one group we want to disparage all groups and and make fun of everybody and make fun of ourselves at the same time. So once 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 he was on board with that, he was like, and and it's true. Like so, if it, if we were if we were heavily weighted to one side of the argument, we needed to make it equal. Absolutely. <laughs> I love that, um, and I love him playing against type, and also that so many people kind of told you that this wouldn't be a project he would be interested in, and there you go. Now he's involved in it, and that's just amazing. Um, and then, of course, you know, uh, Colin Ford, uh, first mm-hmm. of all, I, I was saying to a few friends, I was like, you know, he was on this show Supernatural for forever because it was bothering me when I saw his face. I'm like, I know who this kid is, and lo and <laughs> behold, he was a, a child actor on the CW's uh, Supernatural, but He's great in it, and you said that you never get who you really want as your first choice. I'm not going to ask you to say who you would want as your first choice, but how did Colin kind of nail this role for you? So, you know, the, the, whether it's Colin or, or, or any of the others, and, and it was actually happened particularly with Colin, um, you know, our, our, our fantastic casting director, Denise Shamian, um, when she first read the script, she was like, look, one person is going to come in and they are going to nail the role and you're going to be like, that's them. Um, and for most every single other character, it was absolutely, it was like, it, like you know, Austin walked in, we're like, that's Wesley. And, and Olivia walked in, we're like, that's Angelica. With, with Josh, Colin... Is is was the one role that we had we had a little bit of like hesitancy of like well we're like who is this kid and it's it's so important that we get the right actor and the moment that we and we saw a couple different different actors for it and I'll tell you the moment that we knew that that Colin was our guy was he came in for a callback 
And he came in for a callback to actually read for both Turbo and for Josh. Hmm. And the reason why we knew, and he was actually he was a very good Turbo. And, and I have to say, like, the reason why we all agreed, like, why we knew Colin could do it and why he was, he was definitely Josh um, was because of his ability to be Turbo. He didn't even leave the room. He, was, he did his Turbo audition. He sat down. We talked for a second. And then he did his Josh audition. And we're like, he is such a talented actor. He is so fantastic at what he is able to do and how he is able to transform. We just knew that he had the ability to do, to make Josh the charismatic, you know, central love interest of this show, um, and people would fall in love with him. Um, and he just displayed a level of acting that I have, I, I, I rarely ever see. Um, and so that's when we knew that that he was our guy. That's fantastic. That's really great to hear. Um, and it just seems like you really have constructed this really wonderful cast, really have paid attention to so many details. I did not know that it only took, say, uh, four months to film this show. That's 10 episodes. <laughs> That's a very short amount of time. So very much uh, congratulations on all of that. So Daybreak just hit Netflix. Are we hearing anything about a possible second season? Um, you know, they, we are hearing some things, certainly, we are, we are working, we are endeavoring towards a second season, um, there is definitely a lot, uh, uh, we have plans, we have very good plans, um, you know, and, and my hope is that everybody just watches it and enjoys it, uh, so that we can come back again. Awesome. I really hope so as well. And with Daybreak coming out, um, and it seems to really be garnering a very positive reaction on social media, which is good, you know, for the odds. Uh, mm-hmm. Besides that, do you have anything else in the works that uh, fans, everyone out there should be on the lookout for? Uh, the one thing I can talk about is there is uh, another show coming on Netflix that uh, that I've been involved with um, called Lock and Key. Uh, it's based on Joe Hill's uh, fantastic comic book uh, that is m- one of my favorite comic books ever. It's an incredible series. Uh, it'll be coming out in 2020. Uh, everybody needs to watch that as well. That's awesome. I love that you're adapting all of these comic books. So before I let you go, I have one question to ask. Uh, From either the Marvel or DC universe, what is a story or a character that you personally would love to bring out on the big screen? Oh, my God, there's so many. Um, (laughs) There's so many. Uh, I, I will limit it to two. I would, I you know, and and I'll tell I'll tell you it's one from each because they're they're the key they're my key favorites. Um, I would love to do a Green Lantern, uh, whether series or film, um, for for uh, for DC. I just adore Green Lantern and the whole universe. Um, and and I'm ready for my Kitty Pride movie. Um, I know people yes. were working on it. I would love to see a Kitty Pride movie. Kitty Pride was my hero growing up, you know, because she was the she was the Jewish X Man, and I was like, yes, 
that is, I don't know, you know, I think that, that everybody's ready for a Kitty Pride movie. I think not only is everyone ready for a Kitty Pride movie, but I think everyone and their mother pretty much is ready for a Green Lantern movie or TV show. Ever since Ryan Reynolds' uh, movie, people have been, okay, when is Green Lanterns <laughs> coming back? So I'm not sure when DC is going to do that. I guess we all have to kind of hold our breath a little, but hey, <laughs> who knows? <laughs> but uh, exactly. Aaron... It has been absolutely wonderful speaking with you today. I'm really happy to have gotten the chance to do so, and I really hope that all the listeners out there watch Daybreak because it's a lot of fun. I love new twists on a zombie apocalypse, so everyone please check that out. And, Aaron, thank you again. Such a pleasure. Thank you so much. It was awesome being with you. Awesome. Have a great rest of your day. You too. Bye.